Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the blessings of the Sabbath hours. And Father, as we linger in your presence a little longer this afternoon, again, Lord, we do it for the primary reason, coming to know you better. And so, Father, we pray that again you would send your Holy Spirit to take the message, the words that are spoken, the words that are read, and send the message home to our hearts where it ought to be. We thank you, Jesus, for we ask it in your name. Amen. I want to reread to you a statement that I have read um, in the last two presentations, and I'm repeating it all three times because I really want this to be cemented, cemented in your mind. The Southern Review, January 1 of 1901, where we are told, he only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. And again, those who love one another as is outlined in 1 Corinthians 13, they are the ones that will have a true understanding of God and know him. But then she goes on and she says, this is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality or life in our churches, because there is little love, there is little life. Theology is valueless unless it is saturated with, holding as much as it can, saturated with the love of Christ. God is supreme. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the similitude of the character of God. Now, in the last two presentations, I've kind of been couching this in negative terms, that there's little vitality, uh, that there is little uh, value in terms of our theology. But I want you to notice that you can flip this around and see two beautiful promises. And the promises are that a church who has agape in its presence, a family who has agape in its heart, a person who has agape will have vitality. Amen? And also a group, a people, uh, an individual, or a church that has agape will have a theology that other people uh, observe as being valuable. So these are two promises as well, that as we take the challenge to allow the roots of agape to sink very deeply into our hearts, this love of God that defines that we are disciples of Christ, if we allow that to happen, there will be vitality, there will be life, and those around us will view the theology that we believe as something that is valuable for them to acquire because obviously their theology has made an impact in their lives. As we've mentioned already, the chapter is divided into three sections. We looked at the first two already. In verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about the supremacy of love. He gives the five contrasting statements there that we looked at in our time together last night. Uh, this morning, we looked at love analyzed in verses 4 through 7, where he breaks down the components of what love is. He defines for us the character of Christ, if you will, and he gives us the details of what it is. This evening, I want to take a moment to look at the third and final segment here in Agape, verses 8 through 13, where Paul talks about the permanence of 
agape. And he begins right at the very beginning of verse 8 by setting forth the permanence of agape, that it goes and never ends. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, he says this, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. He says, charity never faileth. These are very thought-provoking words for us to think about. Charity never faileth. It's an unfortunate translation in the King James Version of the Bible. The literal meaning of the word fail is that it does not end. That charity does not end. Charity does not come to an end. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not lost or it doesn't uh, perish at some point in time. In fact, Tyndale put this part of the passage as charity falleth not away. It is permanent. It is unending. It endures throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Not just for the time here on this earth, but also in the world to come. There are two ways that I believe we can look at this part of our study of 1 Corinthians 13. That charity never faileth. When it comes to our love towards our fellow human beings, brothers and sisters in Christ, marriage relationships, other types of relationships, Paul tells us that charity never ends. When other loves grow cold, charity continues to love. When the relationship grows cold, charity continues to love. When times get hard, agape continues to love. It does not come, it does not go, but it is consistent, it is always there. It is kind of similar to how Jesus said when the disciples came to him and asked, Lord, how oft shall we forgive our brother? What did Jesus say? He said unto 70 times Seven. And the point wasn't that Jesus was saying that we keep a scorecard and that when we reach 490 that we no longer have to forgive. The point was that Jesus said we should forgive as often as they ask for forgiveness. And even if they don't ask for forgiveness, we should continue to forgive. And the same thing is true when it comes to agape, when it comes to charity, that we love no matter what we continue to love, because as I mentioned before, it is what we are made up of and we cannot respond in any other way when, uh, as a Christian, we always respond in this Christ-like love. The other way that we can look at this passage where the Bible says that charity never ends or agape never ends is in the contrast that Paul is making between the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the love of Christ in 1 Corinthians 13. As we know, the spiritual gifts are going to come and go. When you look at the spiritual gifts outlined in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, we see them as uh, God giving them to us to advance the cause of God. But when Jesus comes, there is not going to be any longer a need for those spiritual gifts. Those spiritual gifts will then pass away, as Paul outlines here in verse 8. But when it comes to charity, when it comes to agape, it will continue. It will transition 
from this world into the world to come. As I mentioned before, it is our character that we are going to take with us to heaven. And it's the character of agape developed in the life of God's people that will transcend from this world into the world to come, into the kingdom of heaven one day. Paul says, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But of course, agape will continue. In passing, verse 11 says this, and we're going to get to the uh, final verse that I want to really spend time on here in just a moment. But in verse 11, Paul makes this interesting statement. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away what? Childish things. Simply, Paul is making the statement here that uh, charity or agape is something that grows and deepens over time. Just like as a child or as, as a human, we grow and we mature over time, as different as it is between childhood and manhood, agape will develop in the same way. That as we get more and more uh, uh, involved in our relationship with God, as we grow in that relationship with Christ, our love for others, our love for God is going to deepen and it's going to mature. Simply put, Paul is saying that agape needs to develop. It shouldn't be something that stagnates, but it should be something that develops over time. We could spend more time on that, but I want to press on to the verse of study this evening. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13 is where I want to spend our time. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul makes this concluding remark in this chapter. He says, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Agape. What is the most important thing in the world? Depends on, I guess some people might say, where they are at in their particular journey in their life. If you're having health struggles, you might say that your health is the most important thing. If you're having spiritual struggles, you might say that your spiritual life is the most important thing. If you're of a secular mindset, you might say that the acquisition of money or things is the most important thing. But Paul categorically makes the statement that the most important thing for the child of God to develop next to accepting Christ as their personal savior is to develop a heart that is full of charity. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Listen to this, volume, uh, Testimonies, volume 6, page 439, servant of the Lord says this, the greatest work, the what kind of work? The greatest work that can be done in our world is to glorify God by living the character of Christ. What's the greatest work that can be done? By living the character of Christ. Not just understanding the character of Christ. Not having a theoretical knowledge of the, of the character of Christ. Not seeing the character of Christ in other people. But the most important work that a human being can do is to develop and live 
the character of Christ. Now, now we, we've already outlined this here in our study together. Verses 4 through 7, Paul is defining to us what the character of Christ looks like. He's breaking it down to the fabric of what it is made out of. He's telling us the different components of what agape is that comprises the character of Christ. And now the spirit of prophecy tells us that the greatest work we can do is not in some far-flung part of the world. The greatest work that we can do is not necessarily taking somebody on a specific spiritual journey, but the greatest work that we can do is living the character of Christ. This is what the church is waiting for. This is what the world is waiting for. This is what God is waiting for. He is waiting for his people to develop his character in their own lives so that he can shine out of them to those around them. God is waiting for this. And if you want to do something big for God, you don't have to do it in some splashy manner. It doesn't have to have a big budget or nice shiny lights. But if you want to do something big for God, battle it out with the Lord in the prayer closet and say, Father, I covet the character of Jesus. It's the greatest work, she says. It's the greatest work. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, just jot it down. Paul says, And above all these things, Put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Did you catch that? Above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfect. He, he's making this statement that charity is very important. Agape is very important. It is, it is above all these things, he says, to put it on. Peter follows up the same statement. We read this this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. He says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. You see, the Bible writers are making it very clear here for us this evening that if we want to do something that is going to impact the kingdom of God, we need to have this character of Christ. And as I've mentioned in my study together, in our study together last night, this isn't something of our own human devising. It's not something that we can go and do on our own, like we do the Sabbath, or we do the health message, or we do outreach. We can do that stuff and be unconverted, but you cannot do agape and be unconverted. Both Paul and Peter say above everything, have 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, pulsing through your spiritual veins. Put on charity is what they both advise us to do. Well, back to our text, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, the greatest of these, is charity. I think we miss the impact here. Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, and he contrasts between agape and the spiritual gifts. But then he concludes 1 Corinthians 13 by contrasting between these three things, faith, hope, and love. And out of these three things, I mean, faith, hope, and love, they're going to they're gonna go even into the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're also eternal, faith, hope, and love. All three of them are eternal. They will go on. They will last forever. But out of the three, what does Paul do? He takes agape and he puts it on the top of the deck. Let me just draw this contrast for you a little bit more here this evening. Faith. Acts chapter 16 and verse 13, or sorry, Acts 16 verse 31. 
Peter, or Paul rather, tells the jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. It was Jesus who said to Mary in Luke chapter 7 and verse 15, And he said unto the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38 that the just, God's people, the just shall live by faith. We're also told in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. And then we find that it's through faith that we obtain grace. It's through faith that we obtain pardon, justification, sanctification, and ultimately redemption. It's by faith, the Bible tells us, that we are to fight the good fight. It is by faith that we are able to withstand the fiery darts of the devil. It is by faith, the Bible tells us, that we overcome the world. And Paul, in his concluding statement in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, he says, yes, faith is important. But agape is more important. Are you catching the contrast here? This is big stuff. These themes are so huge. We just, we run right through these Bible passages and we continue to go on and we miss how big of a ramification. Paul is drawing a huge picture here for us. Faith is all throughout scripture. Faith is the bedrock of our spiritual life, the bedrock of our salvation. And he says, as important as faith is, charity developed in the character or developed in the uh, people of God is more important than that. He moves on. He talks about hope. Where would we be without hope in this world? What, 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 what hope would we have if we didn't have hope in the coming of the Lord? Jesus, obviously, his soon return, fills us with a hopeful expectation that there is something that is worth living for because this world is not all that we have to look forward to, but we have the world to come. In fact, as I was studying this, I ran across an interesting passage that I had never really taken much notice to before. Romans chapter 8 and verse 24, where the same author of 1 Corinthians 13 states, For we are saved by hope. We are saved by what? <laughs> we're saved by faith. And then Paul says we're also saved by hope. But more important than that, Paul says, is this agape. Paul continues this theme of, of hope in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 and 19, where he says, By two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Listen to what it says in verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in within the veil. What is hope? Hope is a anchor. What's the job of an anchor? It brings stability, right? You know, when there's a storm, ship puts out an anchor, and it brings stability to that ship. I read a story not too long ago about some fishermen that were uh, fishing off the coast of El Salvador. It was a beautiful day. Uh, they were anxious to get out and uh, do some fishing. And so they, 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 they got in their boat. They launched out, uh, right before they launched out, in fact, uh, the, the captain, the one in charge, noticed that there was no anchor in the boat. But it was a beautiful day. 
They didn't think they were going to be out there very long. And so they cast off. They took off and they left shore without the anchor. They left it behind. And, and, and as they were out there doing their fishing, uh, the time came for them to come back. They had a full load of fish that they had caught. It was a great fishing trip. And on their way back, they were caught in this terrific storm. And as they were trying to push their way through these waves, uh, the, the engine uh, just stopped working on them. Their GPS wasn't working. The radio battery had died. And there they are in the middle of the storm with no anchor. They were swept out to sea, and they drifted in the Pacific Ocean for 14 months. True story. 14 months they lived out in the ocean until they washed up on some lonely Pacific island out there and were finally rescued. Hope is an anchor. The hope in the coming of the Lord brings stability. Hope in salvation brings stability. Hope in trans, uh, translation brings stability. The hope that God gives to us, it brings stability. And when we don't have that hope, we are like a ship without an anchor. We are tossed to and fro, and uh, we, may, we may not know it, but we might be out somewhere in the Pacific Ocean of life, just wandering around, hoping that one day we might get rescued. Hope provides stability. But Paul says, as great as hope is, he says, the greatest of these is love. Without agape, families begin to disintegrate. Have you seen that in your own life? I'm a product of a split family. I know what that's like. Without agape, in our lives, society goes to pieces, and there is not much hope in this world without this selfless, self-sacrificing, disinterested in myself kind of love for other people. Again, Paul's, Peter says, have fervent charity among yourselves. As we began our study together, I kind of uh, talked about this passage a few moments ago, but I want to bring it back in here as we talk about the greatest of these being love. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, that we are to covet earnestly the best gifts. And then he says, yet I show unto you a more excellent way. And it got me thinking, if we're to covet the best gifts, and not just covet, but he says to covet earnestly the best gifts. If we are to covet the best gifts, the spiritual gifts, how much more should I covet 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 in my life, right? If we're to covet the best gifts, the gifts outlined here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if we are to covet them, not just covet them, but covet them earnestly with, with, with zealousness, how much more should I be coveting the character of Jesus that is outlined in 1 Corinthians 13? But oftentimes, I think we give this concept a kind of a passing understanding or a passing thought. This needs to be something that we truly wrestle with the Lord on. Not just in the next week, not just in the next month, but daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, just continuing to check in with the Lord and say, Father, I need this character. I need it to mature over time as a child matures into a man. I need it to grow. I need it to get stronger. I need it to become more valuable and, uh, and something that you can use more effectively in the cause 
of God. How much more should we covet charity than the spiritual gifts? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. Matthew chapter 25. Of course, you know that this is a continuation of thought from Matthew 24, where Jesus is talking about the signs of his coming. Matthew chapter 25, we find three parables that Jesus gives. But I want to look at one parable here, the last one, very quickly. Verse 31, beginning in verse 31. And I want you to notice what the determining factor is when Christ comes back. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, the Bible says this, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations. How many nations? And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. How many groups will there be? And he, shall, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And, he, and then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now notice what it says in verse 35. For or because. So he's saying, I want you to inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you, and now I'm going to give you the reason why. Because. Because I was and hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, and answer saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee? Or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison or, uh, and came uh, unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, what does he say? You have done it unto me. Notice when Jesus, what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's amazing the, the thought that he is conveying. When Christ comes back and he redeems the sheep, the righteous, and he reaps them to take them to heaven, Matthew chapter 25 gives us the reason why he is taking them to heaven. For, because. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not tell us anything about what they believed. Jesus does not say anything about what they said. Jesus does not say anything about their religious exercises. But what Jesus says is what they did. Are you all following me here this morning, this evening? Right? He's telling them, you did this, you did that, you did another thing, you did these things, and because you did these things, you are coming into the kingdom of heaven with me. Now, notice what he goes on to say. In verse 41, 
Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We use this, 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 this Bible passage in our Bible prophecy seminars. That hellfire was not prepared for humans, but hellfire was prepared for who? The devil and his angels. But we also know that Jesus is saying to those on the left hand that this is where they are going to go. And notice what he says in the next verse, verse 42. He says, for, or because. Because, he's going to give the reasons why. Because I was and hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then verily they, uh, they also answered him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it not unto me. It's interesting the division between the sheep and the goats that Jesus gives. It's not what they believed or what they professed to be the truth that divides them, as we oftentimes think in our Adventist mindset, that our theological knowledge our understanding of the Sabbath, the 2300 days, and all of that kind of stuff, as important as that is, according to Jesus, that's not what distinguishes us out. That's not what separates us from the sheep and the goats. But what separates us from the sheep, sheep and the goats is the agape in our hearts. See, agape is not just a theoretical head knowledge, but it is something that is expressed in the actions that we do. Jesus didn't just go, go around telling people that he loved them. Jesus didn't just go around telling people that his Father in heaven loved them. But Jesus went around doing good works that were evidence that he loved them. And the Bible tells us that it's the same criteria that divides between the sheep and the goats. It's what Jesus will put his finger on that will divide the righteous from the wicked. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not preaching a social gospel. I'm not preaching that all that matters is that we love people. Because we must give them the truth as well. We love them for the purpose of giving them the truth and ultimately leading them into a relationship with Jesus that will bring them to the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to notice again that in Matthew 25, there's nothing said about what the sheep believed, but it's everything about what they did. And then in verse 46, the Bible says this, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. By withholding agape from others, we are proving to them that we never knew Jesus. When we withhold agape from other people, when we see those that are in need and we just pass them right by, we are proving to them that we really never knew Jesus. For if we knew Jesus, we would do the works that Jesus did. He couldn't help himself. When he saw somebody in need, when he saw somebody who was hurting, when he saw somebody who was hungering and thirsting after something spiritual, 
Jesus could not help himself. He had to reach out to them. He had to encourage them. It was who he was. He could not respond in any other way. And God is waiting for his people to get to the same point in their spiritual life. Paul says something interesting in Ephesians. You can go there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 14, Paul, in talking to the church of Ephesus, he says this, For this cause I bow my knees. What do we call that when we bow our knees? Worship? Prayer? So Paul is telling the, or the Ephesian church, the church of Ephesus, that he's praying for them, bowing his knees, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and in earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And then notice what he says in verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being what? Rooted and grounded in in what? Rooted and grounded in agape may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, the height to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying. He's on his knees. He's beseeching the throne of God and he's praying for the church of Ephesus and he's saying, Lord, root and ground them in agape. May their experience be rooted and grounded not in a superficial, shallow relationship with you, not in just a mere theoretical, fanciful understanding of your word or some sort of theatric in their spiritual life, but may it come from the root of love. May they be rooted and grounded in love that they may be able to comprehend the length, the breadth, the, breadth, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ. That's what God wants us to understand. Not just in our minds, but in our hearts. In the actions, in the words, or in the silent moment. That we might know the love of Christ, which passeth all understanding. You know, the one thing that I have really been frustrated with in this whole study of 1 Corinthians 13 is my inability to really be able to describe it. As I've studied it through, as I've looked at it, I know there's much more to it, and I feel like sometimes my human language gets in the way of accurately portraying what it is that Paul is trying to talk about. I almost feel like what I'm doing is uh, I'm trying to describe, for an example, say I went to Yosemite, and I took pictures of it with a Polaroid camera. And I came back with those Polaroid pictures, and I'm trying to describe to you the grandeur of the Yosemite Valley. Does it do it much justice? Now, I've been there. I've seen it in person. And it's an absolutely stunning place. 
And those little Polaroid pictures, as pretty as they might be, they really fail in properly conveying what it is that is there in the Yosemite Valley. Maybe they might inspire you to take a trip to go there and see it yourself, but they really do not accurately portray what it is. And sometimes I feel like the human language gets in the way of really being able to describe to us what agape really is. And in fact, it's kind of interesting that when you read the writings of the Apostle John, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, it's almost like he's having the same experience where he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's almost like John is throwing his hands up in the air. He's done what he can to try to describe this beautiful love in his gospel. And he continues to try to describe it in the first epistle of John. But it, it's almost like he's frustrated and he throws his hands up and he says, just behold it. I can't describe it to you. The language just fails. It pales in its ability to be able to accurately describe what this love is. And so John says, behold it. So I can't think of a better piece of advice to give to you tonight but to behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Really, the only way we can do that is by spending time with the Lord and His Word and doing just that, beholding it. What has he done? How did he live? What did he say? And beholding the love that Jesus has manifested to those around him, and as we behold it, it becomes part of who we are. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Two passages in closing. Very quickly, in 1 John 5.14, you're familiar with these texts. 1 John 5, 14, the Bible says this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, what does the Bible say? He what? He hears us. If I ask the Lord to give me this experience, is he going to hear that prayer? John 14, 14, the Bible says, if you ask anything in my name, Jesus says, I will do it. These are two passages that I pray are encouraging to you because as I study 1 Corinthians 13, I became very discouraged, as I mentioned on, in a previous presentation. It just seems impossible. It's almost like if that's what God wants, I kind of throw my hands up in the air and say, I give up. But when I read these passages of Scripture and I understand the ability of God that if I ask for something truly desiring it, as I pour out my heart to the Lord and say, Father, I will not have rest. I will wrestle with you and wrestle with you and wrestle with you until you give me this experience. As I do that, the Bible, will, the Bible tells us God will answer that prayer. As we wrestle with the Lord as Jacob did in the Old Testament, saying, I will not let you go until you give this thing to me because, Father, I do not have it within myself. Give me it, dear Lord, I pray. I want to be used by the Lord to show his character to others, to be that loving, lovable Christian that is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. I want to be that Christian that has the love of Christ in my heart that attracts people from Satan to Jesus. I want to be that magnet. I want that experience. 
I crave it desperately. I want to ask you this evening, do you crave the same thing? Are you willing to wrestle with the Lord on this one? And not just go home and say, well, that was a good weekend. Start Monday back as usual, back into the old grind. But to really take it to heart and say, Lord, use me as a magnet to allure people to you. Not just in the words that come out of my mouth, but the way I live my life. People around you know that you are a Christian, but now they want to see if you're a Christian. You've heard the old saying before, talk is cheap. People are looking for somebody who has substance with Jesus. Lord, make me a magnet for you. Is that your desire this evening? Would you, would you kneel with me as we pray together? Dear Jesus, this is too big for us. We simply can't do it on our own. And Father, we're sick of the status quo, doing the same thing over and over again. We're tired of being stuck in the rut of Laodiceanism, being lukewarm Christians that are sitting on the fence. And Father, we ask this evening that you would continue to stoke the flame of Christ's character being reproduced in our lives. Sure, it seems like it's impossible, but we understand that we serve a God who with him all things are possible. Father, I pray for each one that's here tonight, for those that were able to attend the other ones, that this experience will continue with them, with all of us, Lord, as we continue to grow and mature from childhood to adulthood in our spiritual life with you. Make us a magnet, Lord, that allures people to you, that is so attractive in the eyes of the world that they will say, I want what they have. That instead of us having to ask them hey, would you like to study the Bible? That they might come to us and say, hey, can you tell me how I can get what you have? Dear Jesus, do this work and use us, I pray, in your hands to finish this great work and to bring this world to a close that we might be with you in the kingdom of heaven one day. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the work that has already begun. We praise your holy name. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www 
www.audioverse.org.